The publishing world's most prestigious awards are back to crown the most innovative players in the industry. If your publication prides itself on pushing the boundaries more than anyone else, we have 27 categories available for entry in this year's Mumbrella Publish Awards across editorial, sales, marketing, design, branded content, online, events, audio, and more. First entries are due 23rd of June, so head on over to mumbrella.com.au forward slash publish awards for more information. between sports codes and betting brands have encouraged a massive increase in gambling advertising, according to a Four Corners investigation with Deakin University. Meanwhile, Group M releases the latest instalment of its biannual advertising spend report, taking some of the wind out of the local growth sales. All these topics discussed before a chat with Steve Pollack, founder of the Payback Project that recently launched in Australia, and James Greet, advertising veteran and the project's local boss on how agencies can deliver sustainable and responsible media. Welcome to the Mumbrella cast. I'm Lauren McNamara and joining me for the news chat today is Mumbrella's event content editor, Diana DiCecco. Hello, Hello. how are you, Loz? Good, good. And also our editorial director, Damien Francis. Loz, thank you for having me. I've learned something really important. What's that? Don't eat salt and vinegar chips before you do a podcast. Mouth burning. Rookie is really painful at the moment, but uh, (laughs) we will carry on. It was a rookie error, an absolute rookie error. I'll tell you what, though, I'm feeling pretty pumped after um, after that intro for the awards. And I was just thinking, maybe I should enter. Can I enter? (laughs) <laughs> Technically, no, but um, yeah, look, you know, it's terms and conditions and all that sort of stuff. I didn't write them, not my fault, but did you say aloha in the entry? Are you uh, are you expecting a holiday soon? Because you're not getting one. I'm just... <laughs> Damn. Yeah. I'm trying to seed it, seed the idea in. <laughs> Consider it seeded and denied. <laughs> all right, next time. Moving on very swiftly. Quick, Lauren, save us. Alrighty. Appearing on an episode of Four Corners last Sunday, Deakin University's sports management professor Hunter Fujak revealed the secretive deals between Australia's big sporting codes and bookmakers, where the extent of the industry's influence has reached the amateur levels. There were some alarming finds from the Four Corners investigation demo. You watched it. What did you make of it? Yeah, there were certainly some alarming finds with that one, particularly around, like you were saying, was the the amateur level gambling. Now for our industry, what does that mean? Do we even care? Well, I think, you know, we do care a lot uh, in the, the, the perspective that, you know, we do a lot of work and uh, a, a lot of activity around the sporting associations. Uh, so some of them name the NRL, the AFL, uh, Football Australia, who have these deals um, with uh, betting and wagering businesses whereby a portion of their profits goes back to the betting and wagering companies, uh, sorry, the uh, the sporting associations. Uh, and, and so the issue there is that if those betting and wagering companies are, are now going down the line a fair way to, I think the example in the Four Corners documentary was like fifth-tier football, which, you know, we're not in England here. Fifth-tier football in Australia is, is not exactly professional-level no, sports. Quite. Uh, and the the documentary was showing uh, a chap in a car representing a betting and wagering brand, taking notes and and reporting back so that uh, the company could update 
uh, how the uh, how the, the fixture was going, so that the the consumers could bet on these very random and obscure uh, local matches. The problem with that, as the coach said in, in in one of the interviews, is that they didn't know about it. There was no sort of warnings. There was no uh, explanation from the sporting associations that this was happening. Now, you know, on the other side, you could say maybe they hadn't done their due diligence and research or something like that. But realistically, no one put it in front of them that this was happening. And a lot of the point here is we're talking about regulation, heavier regulation of betting and wagering. uh, And the unfortunate sort of situation now is we find it's a, a lot deeper than what we thought with the sporting associations arguably involved more than perhaps we knew. So it's just added another element to this, a much deeper level of involvement. We really have to consider now what happens next in terms of the advertising and marketing around them because we're we're not talking professional levels anymore. We're talking much deeper and it's quite troubling. Yeah, so these sports associations, they're not taking – insignificant cuts from betting and wagering, uh, associations like the NRL, AFL, do you think this is being acknowledged enough? Look, look, you'd argue it's not being acknowledged enough. And the challenge here is, you know, we've already seen how damaging it can be on a professional level, both of the sports itself in terms of where it uh, becomes problematic when the athletes are approached and perhaps get into situations that aren't uh, acceptable for professional athletes. Uh, but also, if you've got consumers with gambling addictions, uh, the more that you put in front of them, the more bets that they can place, the more opportunity they have, uh, the more that they are arguably going to bet. Um, and, you know, one of the things we know is per capita, we have the biggest issue with sports uh, gambling in particular, but betting mm-hmm. and wagering in the world. This is a significant challenge. Um, so, yeah, we, we've got to take this a lot more seriously across the board. More warnings, more regulations, the associations working with the agencies, etc. cetera. Uh, now over to you, DDC. Uh, Senator David Pocock said that Australians lose $25 billion a year gambling and it's the most per capita in the world. Does this make it more important for us to regulate the industry more? It feels like the tobacco of the 90s, doesn't it? And it just, it must change. That's that's the most embarrassing stat um, I've heard in a long time. Gambling, I think, has become so easy and more accessible than ever. Um, so the numbers shouldn't surprise us, right? But they do. They, they're quite shocking, especially with a B in front of it. That's, that's terrible. Um, you know, I keep getting deja vu. Every time gambling comes up, I get deja vu. I had my nonno on on one side of my family who was an avid horse racing gambler, but he had, he was very limited. He'd read the paper, go down to the TAB, make his bet and he was done. These days you can bet on anything. And, you know, the advent of digitization and apps have made it so accessible. Um, The thing that really gets me and, and I find so problematic and the reason why I think it's the most important to regulate is the way that people are incentivized to bet now is is a manipulation that we haven't seen before. Um, I'm personally looking forward to the parliamentary inquiry on into online betting and the impacts on those experiencing harm has gone through the process. It's nearing finalisation. Um, 
it's been through a submission process and they're going to, I think, release the recommendations pretty soon. So the short answer to that is yes, it does make it much more important for us to, to regulate it. And you know what, DDC, and I'm, I have a feeling Laws is going to ask this question anyway. So I'm just going to jump in, Laws, and, and rip that out from under Go you. For it. Where it. Where it really affects our industry here, and I was speaking to a few people at the Finance Marketing Summit that we just ran last week about this, is that there is an opportunity now for agencies uh, to decide whether they work with betting or wagering brands. You know, we published another story uh, today that, that our editor who's um, on leave at the moment, Shannon Malloy, uh, wrote about uh, a challenger brand, Double, suggesting that uh, there needs to be more restrictions. Um, you know, like you said, DDC with tobacco, I think we're getting to a stage where agencies, if if they've got a, I guess, proclamation on purpose that doesn't line up with betting and wagering, this is where they need to say we're not going to work with these types of brands like other agencies can perhaps, but there are a fair few people at that summit that I spoke to who said, we just outright won't work with betting and wagering businesses anymore. And surprisingly for me, a number of professionals who said, I personally won't work with those brands uh, anymore. So I think it's going a little bit beyond uh, regulation at the moment. And I think there's also a very big PR game uh, in play here as well, because you know, Dabble is not the first brand who's a betting and wagering brand who's called for or suggested that they are expecting increased regulations and they're happy to to accept those. But of course they would say that. As they if you didn't have out, a choice. Right? You know, you can't come out as a betting and wagering brand and go, no, that's ridiculous. You know, give me all your money. Um, so we're in a, a, an interesting situation here where the industry has a choice. Uh, the betting and wagering brands as well have a, a choice in, in, in what they do. Um, but being that, we know marketing is effective. Duh. You know, so how do we as an industry work with uh, a industry sector that we acknowledge has some pretty significant challenges? That's going to be a, a big story for the rest of the year. Yeah, it'll be interesting seeing how that plays out over the next couple of months. <laughs> Moving on, WPP Investment Arm Group M this week released the latest instalment of its biannual media forecast report this year, next year. It downgraded the outlook of Australia's advertising growth in 2023, backflipping its statement last year. Damo, what are the important figures in this report? Well, I think the headline, Loz, is essentially there's still growth. It's going to be minimal, uh, so it's not going to be uh, the 3.4% originally expected. It's now going to be 0.2% according to the Group M figures, of course. Um, interesting, though, that the global figures have remained uh, at 5.9%. So no, um, I guess, change in expectations there. What does that mean money-wise? Uh, that the Australian ad revenue is 14 billion US dollars globally, 874 billion billion. Um, and we're expecting uh, that digital surprise is going to be the the top earner, 68.8% of the, the total ad spend. But um, look, pulling that out as, as well, they gave the, the top 25 um, businesses in terms of ad revenue, which was really interesting. You know, your Googles and your Metas and Amazon, etc. Uh, but a couple that were interesting to pull out, very, very few 
dropped. Uh, but the two that did, Twitter went from 4.5 billion in 2021 to 4 in 22. And Warner Brothers Discovery also dropped very slightly. So look, not, not a major change, but they're certainly becoming a, a little more, uh, I guess, skeptical about what we should expect for, for the rest of the year. Yeah, absolutely. And in May, uh, Dentsu released a similar report. What kind of main similarities can we see between them? Yeah, so there are a few interesting similarities there. Look, the Dentsu report uh, for May suggested that growth would be 3.2%, which is very close to the 3.4% that Group M had suggested prior to the the correction. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, which what plays out there. Uh, also, you know, Oz expected to deliver US three thirteen point seven billion in ad revenue. Again, very close to to the fourteen that uh, Group M had suggested, and uh, Dentsu also sort of backed up Group M. And the retail media is going to uh, grow uh, considerably. Digital is the one that's contributing uh, the most. Uh, so there is a lot uh, a lot of similarities there. Slight differences, uh, particularly in the global. Uh, contribution uh, in terms of growth, I should say. Um, Dentsu a little bit more conservative uh, around the 3% mark, so figuring that the growth globally versus Australia would be relatively similar. Um, obviously, Group M thinks slightly different there. Yeah, and DDC, as our resident marketer here, would you be spending more or possibly holding back at the moment? Oh, tough question. That would, that would really depend on the industry, right? So there are industries doing really well, there are industries still suffering, and there are those that are, aren't, that are suffering a lot of challenges given, given the year we've had and the year that we'll probably end up having. Um, I think it might depend on what you're comping, what you're comping from last year. Um, and, of course, the winner of all is, you know, the business's expectations because the rules kind of say, the marketing rules say that, you know, you should be in market when we're, when we're facing a downturn so that you can retain, you know, that, that prime position in the consumer's mind so that come the other side of whatever, whatever it, uh, the downturn might be, you are first and foremost. Um, so based on that, yes, you'd spend. Um, but what happens internally in businesses and marketing departments, I think it's a very different story. At the end of the day, there are results to achieve and no CEO is going to be listening um, when they've got a number to hit and a forecast to make. And are there any other economic or industry factors you think are at play here? I think there are a heap. You know, I, you just need to look at, you know, that. I mean, the finance summit last week has probably got all the finance numbers in my mind at the moment, so they're feeling really fresh. So everything around inflation, interest rates, we've had this, you know, we've had this this 25 basis points hike. We're sitting at 4.1%. Uh, um, everyone was hoping that wouldn't come, but it did, and it has impacts right through the supply chain. Um, unemployment um, is another factor. You know, it's been sitting steady just now um, and has been decreasing since 2020, but what does it really look like for balance of year? Um, and the other one that comes to mind for me, and this is, I, I asked this at the finance summit as well, not everyone was um, open to answering it, but the big question is, will we face a looming recession? Um, and that that will be the biggest economic factor, I think. Damo, you got any others to yeah. add? Oh, look, I agree. I, I don't think we're going to hit a recession, but it's generally I generally believe that because we don't often go into recession. Um, look, having a look at the RBA May economic outlook, uh, it's it's suggesting inflation has peaked. Uh, consumer f- 
price uh, inflation has eased, although it still remains high. Let's not you know forget that it's still very high, but it, but it has apparently uh, peaked. GDP growth is going to slow uh, around uh, one and a quarter percent over 2023. Household consumption growth is uh, expected to remain subdued in 23. Uh, what was interesting in that May outlook was that disposable income is actually set to increase slightly uh, for the remainder of the year. Uh, but that kind of comes to the cost of uh, savings with the savings ratio for consumers dropping somewhat. So maybe there's a, a sector of us that have become comfortable with saving less and spending a bit more or having to spend a bit more to get the same thing essentially because inflation is, as I mentioned, still quite high. So not sure if we'll hit uh, a recession this year, but there's enough headwind. Shall we put a bet on it? Shit. Uh, no, I'm not I'm one of those people who <laughs> wants to ruin my savings. <laughs> no, either am I. I'm just being facetious. I don't believe in betting and wagering. Thank you very much, Diana. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, quick, Lauren, save us again. <laughs> uh, yeah, again, a very interesting conversation. And both of those topics I think we'll uh, see more of in the next couple of months. Coming up after the break, Damo's chat with ad veterans James Greet and Steve Pollack, the local leader and founder of the Payback Project on responsible agency practices. All right, it's a great pleasure to welcome an international guest to the Mumbrella cast, as well as a very well known local industry executive. And we're going to be talking today about helping businesses deliver sustainable and responsible media in a new business uh, that is quite an exciting one to market. The guest today, all the way from England, Steve Pollock, who is the founder of The Payback Project and has extensive experience, uh, particularly in brand, but also agency as, as well, most notably uh, Nestle. Uh, with also previous experience at Mindshare and JWT in Athens, which is particularly interesting, very uh, unusual uh, location to, to be working in agency land. But also joining today is James Greet, who will be working on the Payback Project in Australia and, and kind of goes without saying your history, James. I think everyone knows the agencies you've led in the local market, Mindshare, OMD, also been involved with Icon and Hero and a number of other very well-known agencies. But uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me on the Mumbrella Cast. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now, Steve, I might start with you. As I mentioned, uh, we're talking about the Payback Project. James will be running the Payback Project in Australia. You've been running it in the UK. Uh, you, you've launched it uh, a few years ago, and it's all about responsible media. Can you tell me a bit more about what the Payback Project is, why you started it, and, and how it's traveling? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, what it is, is I think fairly simple. Um, it, it's an advisory business, a consultancy, and we really focus on the area of media marketing. So um, it could be anyone on the spectrum. It could be advertisers, um, it could be agencies, it could be media owners. And um, we we really want to help them um, get on the path to net zero. Um, where it came from 
was I was head of media for Nestle in the UK for 10 years from 2012. And Nestle have, as an organisation, they've got some absolutely brilliant plans for achieving net zero. And they're all fully published. They're on their website. I never obviously talk about anything that's confidential. Some amazing plans. Everything from farming, working with farmers, transportation, energy, um, offices, um, recycling, packaging, everything. And it suddenly occurred to me one day, there's a little bit of a gap here. There's there's nothing about media and marketing. And I just thought, well, we're spending a heck of a lot of money on advertising. I wonder if we can play our part. So what I did was um, I, I set up a, uh, we organized a workshop and we got a few of our partners in, um, some media owners, some big broadcasters, some of our agencies, and I asked them um, if, to, I gave them six minutes, and I said, come along, talk for a maximum of six minutes about what your company's doing around sustainability. And this was the first lesson that I learned, which is in this, you know, you know the media industry really well. It's quite, um, let's say, it's not always the most collaborative of businesses, um, but in Never. this space... Everyone is really, really collaborative. So I had two of the top broadcasters in the UK. I had ITV and Channel 4 both presenting in the same room to each other and to the, everyone else. And I thought, I think I'm onto something here. Um, so we used that as stimulus material. And basically, we workshopped it. And at the end of that, we, we realized that, do you know what? <laughs> the media and marketing, A, is generating huge amounts of emissions, and B, Therefore, we've got a part to play in reducing. Um, so initially, I was doing it internally at Nestle. I developed a training workshop. Uh, I took it to all the different brand teams, um, all the different businesses, waters, pet food, et cetera, et cetera. And every time I shared it with the marketing guys, because I was running a central media team, and every time I shared it with the different uh, various marketing people, they were like, never thought about that. You're absolutely right. We're missing something here. And that's when I knew I was onto something. And bear in mind, this was, you know, I don't know what it's like in Australia. I'll find out when I come over, obviously chat to James most days, but this was before people were really talking about it in the UK. It's, it's, it's become a, a lot more visible now. So this is about three or four years ago. Yeah. So um, it basically all started there. I, I left yeah. Nestle at the end of uh, 20... 21 and set up the payback project last year and and the thinking behind the name as you've said I, I i worked in greece for three years and then when i came back i had an international media role in mindshare and i was jetting around the world for 10 years front of the plane cars everything and in those days no one thought about their emissions mm. at all <laughs> and of course now we do um, and that's where the name came to me. I thought it was about time I paid something back. So that's where the payback project comes from. Yeah, fantastic. And as you say, we, we will see you in Australia uh, soon for Mumbrella 360 as well, which would be great to have you on stage. Uh, thank you for coming. He's, uh, he's rowing down here tomorrow. He's right. Yeah, well, that, I was going to say he's uh, he's certainly not getting a, a four-engined jet, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but, James, you're, you're bringing this to Australia if there's – one thing, and I don't mean to be mean, but if there's one thing Australian business is good at, it's talking a good game 
not necessarily acting the good game. Tell me about why you're bringing the Payback Project to Australia. Actually, that's a, that is a rather lovely segue because it absolutely uh, leads in and my answer is informed by the conversations I've been having over the last three to mm. four weeks with leaders of various uh, members of the industry, whether it's media owners, uh, agencies, indies, multinationals, um, and, and some clients as well. Um, and I think, you know, if we go back to sort of why we're we launching it here in, in the first place, I mean, it, it's a global issue. Uh, there is now acknowledgement here that we have an issue, uh, namely uh, global warming. Um, but like every other, I think, industry and society at large in Australia, you know, no, no one really denies it now. They are mainly saying, so what are we going to do to get started? How do I start? Mm. That's, that's where the majority of people are. So it's really quite sort of like uh, simple uh, to pick up what Steve's done with his partners in the UK, bring it over here and, and build on it. And the more of us that are doing this, I think, probably in different places around the world, the, the faster the, the momentum that we can pick up uh, is. I mean, obviously, there's a personal motivation to do this. is something I've been personally interested in. I've been committed, like most people in this space, to personal change over the last five years or so. Um, and that general commitment to sort of act needs a catalyst to make it go faster, if you like. And one of the things I've discovered from talking to people over the last sort of three to four weeks is that whilst people are going, yeah, we need to do something, the question they're stuck on is, actually, how do I get started? Now, that's not everyone. You know, there are some people who've done some sterling work mm. already. And, you know, it's generally embedded. Uh, the majority there are probably in that space where we're going, yeah, we need to do something. And what we've got is like the fire warden approach to it. There's someone who personally has an interest in this space who's volunteering to do it with a couple of other like-minded uh, people around them. And every, every time that they get a break in between pitches, they might pursue a project. And then there are others who are going, yeah, we need to do something, but it's on the, it's on, on the to-do list, if you like. So I think the market's sort of like ripe for making changes. Some already are. Most aren't, but many are committed to doing something. And our, I think, role, just like Steve did in the UK, is quite simply uh, to help people get started. You know, we're not an agent provocateur. You know, um, Steve ain't going to be coming down here and we're not going to be chaining ourselves to the Harbour Bridge. You know, there That's are, a shame. There, <laughs> I'm scared of heights. <laughs> very easily these days. Um, no, I mean, the, the world's full of, uh, full of those. I think where we are, though, is at a stage where people just kind of need to connect and start building a plan and help start, and that's the role of the Payback Project. Yeah, great. So tell me, James, then um, – you, you, you mentioned you'd had some conversations or already. Uh, I have no doubt that you have knowing you and, and how active you are in markets. How have those conversations gone so far? But also tell me, what exactly is it that you'll be offering uh, partners that you work with? Yeah, okay. Um, so over those last three or four weeks so far, and you know this is ongoing, this is what I'm doing mm. every day, spoken to about 25, uh, 30 people. Like I say, the general consensus is we need to do something, um, but we're not quite sure where to get started or we are doing something, but it's limited um, to a silo within the business and we're really only uh, addressing this or putting an action into place in, in one part of our business. right? Um, and I think probably the thing that we sort of help do uh, more than anything else is help them understand that actually this is about systemic change, okay? 
just like DE and I, it's not about having some rules and regulations or some principles and someone to look after it. It doesn't work unless it infiltrates and changes the whole culture and behavior of the business. And um, carbon reduction management is no different than that, okay? So one of the first things we do is help them understand that and recognize that it's about building a team of uh, motivated influencers within the business, which is why we usually sort of end up helping them sort of define 20, 25 individuals, if you like, from across the company. Mm. So every aspect and flavor of the business is represented. So it's just not, it's not just a marketing department issue. No. It goes beyond that. Yeah, so yeah. Complete, completely across the business. Um, and, and I think, sorry to jump in, uh, you know, what's really important to understand is um, it's we're not management consultants. You know, we don't come in and say, you must do this, this, and this. That's not what we do. What we do is we inspire them, we educate them, and we influence them. And we lead them through. So, we'll, you know, we'll probably come on and talk about our, our workshops, our, our sort of the lab, as, as we call it. Um, but it's very much about the individuals in the organisation thinking it through for themselves. And, and, you know, my experience in the UK is that you get much more positive long-term outcomes as opposed to someone who doesn't understand the business as well as the employees coming in and saying, you should do this, this and this. So it's very much... As I say, inspiring, educating, and leading them through a process. Quite frankly, it's not sustainable mm. uh, if you're not helping people figure out how to do it for themselves. I mean, the reality is if our, if our business model and approach is super successful, then we'll be out of a job mm. in 12, 18 months because we've taught everyone how to do it, and then they'll be up and running and do it themselves. But sort of like having helped people realize it's not a fire warden approach, it's an integrated team approach. Um, we'll then run what we call a workshop lab, which is where we bring that sort of like team together. And as Steve said, it's part educational, part inspirational. Here's what's happening around the world. Here's what's happening in Europe. Here's the journey that Steve went on with uh, Nestle. Uh, and help them build out their own carbon reduction plan. Mm. Uh, help them actually map, okay, um, where their emissions and their business are coming from. Then help them reduce it through uh, initiatives that are designed to sort of uh, reduce that as well as actually understand how to measure and track it. And then what they get from that is a proper action plan with some measurable outcomes. So that's how we help them. Okay? And then the smart ones, obviously, which is pretty much all of them, are then up and running. And if what we can then do is also take, because it's not about competitive advantage, you know, you're not going to want to build in pitches because you're better at this than the rest because that defeats the objects of it, right? That's the problem, right? Everyone's got to be on this journey. And I think that's one of the reasons why Steve found the partners he originally worked with in the UK, the media owner partners like Channel 4 and ITV, so collaborative because they recognize that the faster we can get better at doing this and share each other's ideas, the better. And that's one of the things we'll want to do as well, which is build a forum and a platform for sharing and inspiring. Steve, I'd, I'd love to ask uh, your experience having done this now for, for a couple of years or close to a couple of years uh, in the sense of trying to get a grip of what maybe uh, we should expect in the Australian market as well. Tell me about the experience if you've had working with brands and agencies, uh, how long it has taken to, you know, embed this this way of thinking and methodology and the results that, that you've seen. What's the process been like and how many people have you sort of worked with? Well, quite a few. Um, the I'll tell you, the one thing that surprised me was, you know, given my uh, agency and then the big client 
background, I thought when I set the business up that um, advertisers would be queuing up, you know, for my pearls of wisdom. As it happens, I've found most interest from media owners, mm. uh, particularly digital media owners. And um, it, I, I realised what was going on. And this is what's happening. And, and this is also the reason why it's important that we bring this to Australia, adding on James's previous answer. What's happening is big advertisers, big companies and smaller ones as well are under a huge amount of pressure to reduce their carbon. And that's where it's starting from. It's starting with the advertisers. Um, you know, they have to, in Europe, they have to report um, uh, more and more of what they're doing. They're getting pressure from their shareholders, from their staff, um, from non-governmental organisations, you know, like Greenpeace, etc., and various other organisations. And some of them are clued up. I'm not saying everyone is ignorant, because obviously they're not. Some are a lot better than others. Um, but let's say there's a there's a huge chunk in the middle who know they need to do something, but they don't know what, what to do. So they go to their agencies. Uh, the agencies are rapidly getting into a place where they can help. But, you know, I, I'll be a little bit provocative here. I think agencies were a little bit slow off the mark, my personal opinion. Um, so they're going to media owners and saying, ah, help us, we need to reduce our clients' emissions. So um, that's why I've had most, most interest, which surprised me, but then I figured it out from media owners. Once you to answer your question, once you get that interest, you know, some people are just like I have budgeted for it. You know, maybe next year it's not on my radar. Um, but th those are becoming fewer and fewer. And just you know, the the interest that that James has generated just in the last month, talking to people in, in Australia to companies in Australia, shows me that there's something happening now. There's a bit of momentum building. The reason why it's it, uh, it's important that we look at it in Australia is because the Unilevers, the Nestle's, the P&G's, you know, all the big international companies, they're going to be putting pressure on their agencies in all markets all around the world. So even if there isn't a local groundswell, which I think they're starting to be, but even if there isn't, you've got the multinationals who are going to be demanding this. So to answer your question, once, once we get in with people, it's almost like you're pushing on an unlocked open door. They just, they want to learn. And, and honestly, what we're telling them is not rocket science. All we're doing is sharing the benefits of basically, you know, my experience and increasingly James's experience. Um, you know, we've done some training. I did some training with the University of Cambridge, an online course. So it's broader, than, my knowledge is broader than just the media area. But then it, it's guiding people through. And then once they, what I often do is I'll take a company's net zero plans and they all publish them on their websites and I'll mirror them and I'll show them back to the media and marketing team and say, exactly like it used to be at Nestle, you're not, you guys aren't in here, but you need to be playing a part. And then they get it and then we, we guide them through it. And it's, you know, my experience is you build up the enthusiasm, uh, you get them excited, you explain and show that it's not rocket science, 
The measurement bit can be, but we use a partner company to do that. They don't need to bother about that. It's like, you know, you don't measure the TV audience. Someone does that for you. Then you just play around with the numbers. Exactly the same thing. Um, and, you know, my experience of, of people I've worked with, companies I've worked with, is just they really, really want to do it. I mean, James said it's not about commercial advantage. And it, it sort of isn't, and it sort of is. And I'll explain what I mean by that. It's not about commercial advantage in the sense that this is something really important that we all need to do, you know, for the, for the, the planet. It sounds a bit grandiose, but it's true. The reason it is about commercial advantage is because what we're seeing in the UK is um, agency pitches are now incorporating sustainability. You know, so there will be questions about what are you as an agency doing around sustainability internally for yourselves and externally for your clients and what could you do for us how can you help us produce greener and more responsible media plans and and it's we've got like a two two areas that we talk about we talked this morning evening your time about sustainability but we also talk about responsible media so partnering with platforms and publishers and companies who are a force for good in the world, companies like um, Goodloop and We're Eight, who I think are now in Australia. So we talk about that as well. And then once you talk about all these good things, people are like, yeah, I really want to do this. So it very rarely get pushback from 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 our clients. Just to build on that sort of commercial advantage, if you like, for actually embedding this as a business. Um, I think when it gets when it comes down to you know the basic sort of fundamentals. I think commercially it's more about it will cost you if you're not doing this, not that it's going to win you a pitch. Where it might win you a pitch is that the thinking that you bring to bear and the ideas that you bring to your clients' media and advertising behavior actually also bring a force for good with it as well. Okay. So there's a cost for not doing the basics, but there's an opportunity for lending and leading creativity into the answers that you bring to clients and actually how they can actually sort of improve the game with the way they spend their money as well. And do you expect, James, uh, you know, like Steve was mentioning before, that this will or that sustainability will become more of a talking point in pitches moving forward? Is this something that that we might see in locally? Well, I think it just goes back to that point, which I, I just sort of mentioned. Uh, the basic demonstration that you do have uh, a carbon reduction plan in place uh, is going to be table stakes. You know, if you haven't uh, got a proven plan with measurable proven outcomes out of it, then you're going to be at disadvantage. Okay. Um, whether or not you are going to be winning because you are seen to be more sustainable than not, I, I, I don't know. I think where that could come to bear is uh, the power of your thinking enables you to be good for business and good for the planet would be smart as opposed to just good for business. But I guess that's where, that's where you sort of like bring that capability through to actually how you operate and the type of work you do for your clients as well, uh, which is you know why we advocate that you get uh, an all-encompassing stakeholder group in the labs that we create rather than just a couple of people who, you know, watch Cowspiracy and uh, Seaspiracy. Um, we're about to run out of time, so I just want to leave the conversation 
on the reality of, of the situation that not just our industry, but, but society is in at the moment. James, when we spoke uh, recently, uh, you mentioned that the, the timing of, of both yourself and Steve coming to Mumbrella 360 to speak was uh, somewhat uh, fortuitous, almost in a bit of a negative way in terms of uh, what that sort of date period means for the world uh, at the moment in terms of our, our resources. Yeah, yeah. Can you give us a little bit of a wake-up call? Yeah, yeah, totally. And actually, um, uh, there are two things that I've seen or heard over the last week that interrelated. Uh, firstly, I mentioned to you, I went to a, a vivid event on Saturday at Town Hall where uh, Jeanette Winston was in conversation. She's, um, she's an author, provocative uh, uh, thinker as well. She wrote, uh, authored Orange is Not the Only Fruit. She's a very smart um, uh, Lancashire uh, person. And she argued that the role of the creative industry at large artists, writers, painters, creatives, um, is to view problems, see positive outcomes, optimistic outcomes for them, and find answers for them. Um, and she argued only creatives can do this, right, because they don't just dream. They actually go and make things happen. So they don't just envision a statue or a piece of art or a painting or whatever or a piece of music. They, they actually go and realise it and make it happen. And she argued, because she was particularly passionate about um, uh, global warming, she argued that creatives have a significant role to play in leading solutions uh, to existential uh, problems like global warming um, and needed to be at the epicentre of the solutions and actions required to combat that. And she said, the irony is, if you don't put yourself forward, you're simply managing the status quo. And I don't think there's anyone in any area of the breadth of the creative industry that would ever like to be associated with the status quo, okay? So which sort of like brings me to why I think some Umbrella 360 is a really important uh, platform and opportunity for, for this discussion because you've got all of the leaders from across uh, the creative and the media and the marketing industry there, yeah? And I think it's an opportunity for them to actually figure out how as a group they set aside some time and thinking for this as a group, not just as leaders of, of individual organizations. And it's a particularly pertinent moment in time um, because the timing of it actually has uh, an ironic sort of relevance, if you like, or significance to it. Now, when I mentioned to you, you hadn't heard of Overshoot Day, and I'm sure quite a few people won't, but uh, just to sort of recap what it is, as it stands today at this moment in time, humanity uses the equivalent of 1.7 planets' resources per year just to sustain global demand, okay? Now, that's like going over on a production or media budget, i.e. we're not working within our means. Now, each year, the moment or day our demand exceeds an annual supply is known as overshoot day. So that is the day when humanity's demand for ecological resources and services exceeds what the earth can regenerate in that particular year. In other words, the date we start living in debt. Now in 2020, Overshoot Day fell on August the 22nd. That was actually something like two, three weeks uh, later than the year before, probably because of COVID. We turned engines yep. off, we stopped traveling, et cetera. So that was actually quite a good day. In 2021, it was back to normal. It was July the 29th. In 22 last year, July the 28th. This year, 
probably somewhere during Mumbrella 360. So it's not a bad time uh, to be thinking about it. So there's a couple of things we'll be hoping for at Mumbrella uh, 360. Uh, one is we're going to go and invite to our session all the most influential leaders, and hopefully they'll attend, not just to listen to us, but because we want them to get together as a group and, and maybe sort of like commit to figuring out how they work as a team of smart individuals. Uh, and secondly, it would be really cool, Damien, if you could tell them that next year in 2024, no one gets to submit an awards entry for an agency of the year category without first having entered sustainable practice of the year award. But we're, we're certainly going to have a good hard look at that. We've had that discussion. You put me on the spot. I expect nothing less than you, Dan Street. Um, <laughs> so thank you for that. But it, but it is a very serious topic and it is a very serious con consideration. And it's something we will be looking at. Uh, we have run out of we've back. We're talking about overshoot. We've overshot the clock. I, I said we'd go for around 20 minutes and it says 27 at the moment. So it's probably a good time to wrap up this discussion Looking forward, gentlemen, to having you both at Mumbrella 360, July 19 and 20th. I can't quite remember which day you're on, but those are the days that the industry should be at Mumbrella 360. Uh, thank you both for joining us as well on the Mumbrella cast. And a particular thank you to, to Steve, who has woken up quite early in the morning on his birthday uh, of all That's days. Right. So <laughs> uh, appreciate you joining us, Steve, and you as well, James. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening to the Mumbrella cast. Throw us a follow or subscribe if you've enjoyed. And thanks again to James and Steve and to you, Damo. Thank you, Loz. And DDC. You're welcome. And Loz, by the way, you've done an outstanding job. We don't even need Callum. I'm joking. He knows I'm joking. Hopefully, we need Shannon though. So, Shannon, please come back once you've done Dakota. Hope he's surviving. Do you have internet reception there? No, I don't actually think he does. Hail Mary and hope he's okay. And Callum, we love you too. We do. All right, see you next week.